We're going to jump into the book of Acts. Like I said, we're going to continue throughout the whole summer in the book of Acts. The team of teachers will just continue carrying on, picking up from where we left off, and it should be really good. And when, we get, when I get back in the fall uh, teaching, we'll pick it up here. I probably have some other like, smaller, like topical type couple weeks. We'll maybe do something, a little series, and then get back in the book of Acts, and we'll finish up the whole book. So anyways, that's that. Why don't we pray, and then uh, we're going to jump in, book of Acts, chapter 9. We've been looking at the life of, really, bigger, broader picture of the church. Uh, in particular, the life of a guy by the name of Saul of Tarsus, who we come to know as a guy by the name of Paul the Apostle. In fact, um, after I'm done praying, if you guys don't have Bibles, did we already do that, Bible handout? We already did that? Good job. Like, all right. Well, let me pray, and then uh, we'll jump in. So, God, thank you for just... Drawing us here, thank you for your presence, God, that's here, that gives us life, the Holy Spirit that breathes life, that is the breath of God, that gives us energy, gives us hope, and God, we invite your presence here to do what you desire to do, bring healing to our broken areas, to bring encouragement to those places we feel really discouraged or cast down or lost. God, bring a sense of peace to those areas where we feel filled with anxiety. God, bring a sense of confidence in those areas where we feel overtaken by uh, shame or fear. Um, So we just commit this time in your hands and speak to us, God, on every level that we need you to speak to us. So we ask these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So the book of Acts, in short, is this biography on not just any one person, but on this community of people called the church. Um, it's this biography of how this small community of people started in kind of a, a rural area called Galilee, kind of moved, migrated down into the region of the metropolis called Jerusalem, and began to telescope out throughout the entire world. And uh, this is sort of the story of this. And we've been looking at various cameos or snapshots, if you would, vignettes of different people throughout this great storyline. Last week, we looked at the life of this guy by the name of Saul of Tarsus, who undergoes this radical encounter with God. Some of your Bibles will say he has this conversion. Um, That's fine. I don't have a problem with that language. But I also like to really just think of it as this encounter with God, because uh, Saul was a devoted Jew, um, which meant he, he knew who Yahweh was. He devoted the entirety of his existence to Yahweh, to the scriptures. Uh, Saul of Tarsus was not a foreigner to scriptures. He loved the Torah. But he undergoes this radical appending of his life. Everything literally gets overturned. So all of these ideas, these presuppositions, these concepts that he had about God, that he learned about God, literally goes through this brand new grid called Jesus. Brand new filter called Jesus. Jesus encounters him on this road to this place called Damascus. And uh, he was there going to Damascus to arrest anybody that called upon the name of of Jesus. Uh, He was there to go terrorize Christians. I like to think of it this way. Um, Saul of Tarsus was was really the the earliest form of of like a terrorist out to destroy uh, this brand new Christian movement. But he undergoes this radical transformation and then begins to be transformed. Um, And what we begin to see is that his life now takes a radically different shape. So as we think about this, this is what's amazing for us as we observe the life of Paul. Paul literally has this radical progress of spiritual, what we call maybe spiritual maturity or spiritual growth. 
I mean, that, that's, a, that's a great Christian cliche. What does spiritual growth or spiritual maturity mean? Um, well, it basically means you grow in the things of, of the Spirit. Like you grow in or advance in the things of, of God. That's what, what we mean by that. So what does that look like? Can it be measured are the questions that I, I, I want to ask and want to think about. Let me, let me put it this way. Um, I was reading a, a blog post earlier this past week. And it was a, a pastor. He describes this scenario. He goes into a room, and while he's in this room, he's watching this little child who's riding back and forth on this rocking horse. And then uh, he makes his observation. I uh, just kind of written this down. He wrote, uh, this child, this kid, reminds me of some Christians. And he says, um, there's plenty of motion and yet really little progress. <laughs> and I think about that. It's like watching a child on a rocking horse, a lot of motion going back and forth, but there's really no progress. You're not really going anywhere. It's like being on a treadmill, a lot of motion, a lot of action, but there's really, you're not advancing, you're not going anywhere. And the fact is, a lot of times, that's, that's the way we as Christians can be. Like we learn ideas about God, we learn concepts about Christianity, but there's really no real progress in what it means to follow God, to be like God, to press into God. Uh, he goes on to say in this little blog post, it's kind of funny. He says, the difference between a child and an adult is that an adult works. A child makes work for an adult. I think about that. Like uh, an adult works, an adult gets a job, or at least in, in theory, all right? I mean, you can be 25 years old and playing video games all day long, not really working. Um, but in theory, let's just hypothetically say that you're an adult and you have a job and you're contributing to society, you're working, you're volunteering your time, the homeless overflow shelter, you're part of a church, you're working. A, a child, on the other hand, creates work for an adult. So think of, you know, an, an infant that's, you know, soiling a diaper or wrecking uh, the house or chewing on the leg of a chair or, you know, it's, it's spreading Legos everywhere or leaving skateboards to be tripped on, whatever. Um, th- those are all messes to be, to be cleaned up by probably an adult, right? So if you have a child, you're like, yes, amen. He's like, speaking my language, yes. But, but the reality is in a spiritual sense, when it comes to walking with God, the aim is not to remain a child. The aim is to grow, to, to be one that can actually pick up messes and not be a contributing uh, object to the messes, but one that can actually help pick up other people's messes. And I think all of us, we can relate to and think of people in our lives that have been the mess picker-uppers for us, right? Think of who that person is in your life right now. It could be your parent, uh, could be uh, you know, a, a pastor or a Bible study leader, someone you knew, a teacher, a family member, um, in other words, when your messy existence uh, is brought into the full purview of the rest of the world, you bring your life to that person and they help you pick up, sort through, make sense out of this, this mess. And we walk away from those experiences and we're like, oh my gosh, that person is amazing. And somewhere in the back of our mind, we, we oftentimes even think, I would love to be like that person. So really what we're admitting is I would love to progress. I would love to grow. I would love to grow up. I would love to at some point mature into adulthood as, as a follower of Jesus. And really, that's, that's the aim. That's the goal. That we would progress. That we would grow. And what we see in this uh, little passage that we're going to read is Paul is progressing. He's growing. That God's doing something in his life and he's maturing. And that's the whole idea that we want to really kind of focus on and think about and consider this morning and really kind of asking the question, what does spiritual progress look like? Maybe put it another way. Is there a way to measure what spiritual progress looks like? 
are there things that we can be doing, ways in which we're living that we can look at and say, oh, okay, this is evidence that I'm actually advancing. I'm actually growing. I'm actually progressing. Because the opposite of progressing is not stagnation. I mean, it can be stagnation, but it's actually regression. It's moving backwards. Like none of us as human beings, we want to regress. Like that's not good. Societally, we know that that's not good. But in the realm of advancing into Jesus, we want to be people that as we grow, as we go on in our walk with Jesus, that our lives can continue to have these impacts and effects upon other people. That when they're going through messy times or when they're going through difficult situations in their life, we can be there to be some form of help and strength to them. Because in reality, that looks like God. That's what God does. That's what God does for us. And so we see Paul... Um, I'm going to call him Paul every once in a while. So if, I, if you're wondering who's Paul, who's Saul, they're the same people. I'm just, pastor has a hard time remembering. And the point is, is that we're going to see this guy, Saul of Tarsus, grow and kind of move into this realm of, of progress. So I'm going to read the passage. And we're just going to make some comments as we read through this. And one of the things I've been stating along the way is the story of Acts is really a narrative. It's intended to be read as a narrative. So we'll kind of read the story. I'll make some comments as I go. And then when I'm done with this little narrative reading, I'll just kind of make some closing comments about this element of progress that we see in the life of Paul. So we'll pick it up about verse 19, the last part of verse 19, and we'll just enter back into the story that we've been reading uh, for the past several months. It says this, For some days he, that's Paul, he was with the disciples at Damascus. And last week we looked a little bit at you know, the question, what, what is a disciple? And in short, if you weren't here, uh, a disciple is someone that knows and follows Jesus. They've devoted their heart, their energy, their life, their mind to following Jesus. There's someone that is being transformed by Jesus. Jesus is actually changing them and shaping them, remaking them. And they're on mission for Jesus. So three things. One, knowing and following Jesus being transformed by Jesus and on mission with Jesus. So your life is now, should be, if you're a follower of Jesus, a disciple, you should be beginning to look more like Christ, more part of what Christ is up to in this world. That's what a disciple is. Um, you can be somebody that knows a lot about God, but not really devoted, not really being reshaped or changed. We've all met those people, right? They're the people that have a lot of Bible knowledge. They can win Bible trivia. They're really smart. They're really good at carrying on an argument in some sort of a Facebook dialogue slash argument. But in reality, there's no real fruit of love or kindness or gentleness. They're just, they're just arrogant people that have a lot of Bible information. They treat Jesus like a really, really great hobby. Someone that's really interesting. So you read a lot about Jesus. You study a lot of information about Jesus. But you're not really changed by Jesus, the aim of a disciple is to really, truly be like, look like, act like, pray like Jesus in all that we are. So uh, we see this guy Saul um, going from, transitioning from being one that was out to arrest disciples, now becoming numbered amongst them, with them. Paul is one of them. So verse 20 says, and immediately uh, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed or astonished. And they said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? And Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews and lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. So here we see Paul, this guy Paul, Saul, radically transformed. Again, imagine in your mind, here's this guy out to arrest 
Christians. Uh, so to kind of put it in another context, Saul hates, hates, would, would consider Jesus not prophet, not priest, not king, but would consider Jesus chief uh, provocateur, just kind of to say it mildly, or chief um, false prophet. Like, that's how Paul would have viewed Jesus. He would have seen Jesus as the chief heretic who's out to undermine and subvert and undo and destroy or distort Judaism. Uh, the, the religion that was passed down from Abraham all the way back to Adam. The, he would have seen this as a distortion. And so now, rather than Paul going out uh, attacking Jesus, he's preaching Jesus. Like, like the question is, what happened? How did this take place? There's this radically profound transformation in this guy Saul's life. So profound that people just simply aren't buying it. They're like, wait, Saul? That's the guy that everybody knows about. We've been talking about him. Everybody's rumored to be afraid of him and to be worried about him. That's the guy that's out to arrest all of us. And they're like, but now he's in the synagogue preaching Jesus. Like you can imagine how confounding and confusing and and weird in some ways and even warped that is. But that's exactly what God does. God takes people that we would have never imagined coming to faith, following Jesus having a heart that's changed or transformed and just does the unthinkable. I mean, think about it this way. Isn't that you? Isn't that what God did with you? I mean, think about, go back in your mind before you were a follower of Jesus, before your heart was turned on for God, however you want to describe it, whatever type of terminology or language you like to use to describe it. Think about, if someone were to ask you in those, you know, before you came to Jesus days, um, you know, what would you think, what would you say if I were to, Project a future image of you as being one that, that truly loves and believes in this invisible entity called God and who has a son named Jesus and you call yourself a Christian. What would you think about that? Some of us would have been like, there's absolutely no way possible. Because we, we just wouldn't have seen ourselves as that way. Because we have this tendency to forget that, we, that any one of us in which God has changed your heart I mean, even in the most subtlest way, whereby at one point you weren't a follower of Jesus, now you have a heart that's at least interested in Jesus. Like, I'm curious, I want to know him, I want to learn about him, I want to love him, I want to serve him. That is an evidence of God's loving kindness on your life. Period. Like, that truth alone is fuel for worship throughout all eternity. The fact that, I mean, it's, it's like this image in the Old Testament. There's a, there's a question that I think it's Isaiah asks. Can a leopard change the, its spots? You know, the idea, imagine somehow, can a leopard remove its spots upon its own body? Obviously, the answer is no way. But God has this ability to take a dirty soul and make it brand new and clean. God has this ability, this uncanny ability to take a heart that's hardened, that's determined away from God, that's on a path far away from God, towards autonomy, towards self-expression, towards destruction, and turn us to where we are now we love him. Like, that, that's a miracle. Like, that, that's an outstanding miracle. One which should blow our minds, cause us to worship. And it's exactly what we see with Paul. And so he's in these synagogues talking about Jesus. People are tripping out, like, we can't believe this. And this is exactly what's happening. Verse uh, 22, we'll come back to this one in just a second. But it says, Saul increased more in strength uh, and confounded the Jews that this is a sign, this is the idea of progress. We'll come back to it in just a moment. Uh, as we continue in verse 23, it says, When many days had passed, 
the Jews plotted to kill him. Now, I'm going to just say this. I'll throw this out to you if you guys have been familiar at all with uh, reading the narrative, the story here in Acts, um, and compared it to another story which Paul tells about himself in the book of Galatians, all right? For some of you, like, this is not even on your radar screen. You're not even thinking about it. But this is one of those passages I think it's worthwhile just pointing out. Um, a lot of scholars have spent a lot of time debating, thinking, considering, trying to figure out um, there's, there seems to be a little bit of a disunity in terms of the chronology as to what was going on here. Um, uh, Paul's account in Galatian seems a little bit uh, disjointed from the account that Luke tells us about what was going on here. Again, they're not like, like massive um, uh, disjunctions, disunities, but the point is, is that it's enough to where uh, scholars, debaters have kind of raised the point, try to figure it out. If, you, if you've ever been familiar with kind of the, the, this junction between the, the, the two stories matching up, um, there's some great information you can uh, download and get some information on the internet. I would encourage you maybe just Google um, J.I. Packer. He's got some really great information on this. J.I. Packer and put in this Bible passage right here. For the rest of you that like, don't even care, that's fine. We'll get back in the story. But those of you that are like, I'm, I'm really into this. I need to figure this one out. It's like my entire life depends upon trying to figure out this whole thing, bring them together. Then, then Google J.I. Packer and these passages, and, and hopefully you'll get some info on it. That might be helpful to you. So back to the story. So we see that when the days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. So Saul immediately goes from being this guy who's out to kill, out to arrest, out to uh, subvert, to now being this, on this most wanted list um, by all of these people that he was kind of in uh, collusion with. Verse 24 says, But their plot became known to Saul, and they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him down at night, let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. So just pause and think about this for a second. So back in those days, especially in Damascus, cities for the most part, at least big cities, uh, would have walls. They would be well protected by walls. In fact, you can go to the Middle East today and go on these uh, geological, you know, archaeological uh, sites and find all these walls and ancient things that they've discovered. It's really quite fascinating, actually. Um, but back in those days, uh, they would live, on the, live along these walls. And so here, I mean, just think about the drama that's going on here. Like, people are out to kill Saul. So the moment, my, my guess is the moment you gave your life to Jesus, you didn't you end up on someone's hit list. Like, a little bit different. Um, so people are now out to kill this guy Saul. So Saul finds out about it, and they let him down in a basket. All right, just imagine, it's in the middle of the night. Um, what's that going down the side of the wall? It's like, that's, that's, that's. Saul, the apostle, that's like he, everyone wants to kill him, but he's being lowered down the wall so that he can now escape. Now, again, it's a story, like it's a great story. Someone should like maybe make a, a movie about it. It's really good. It's really good. So as we go on, we read that it says in verse uh, 26, it says, and when they had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. So this would be like Peter and John and, and James and some of the other leaders that followed Jesus would have been the apostles. So for the most part, um, the people that Jesus raised up, 12, uh, minus one, Judas obviously, they all lived in Jerusalem. For the most part, the church was the strongest in Jerusalem for quite some time until there was persecution that arose. But it seemed as if the main corpus, the main leadership of the church remained in Jerusalem for the most part. So Saul of Tarsus, now who is a disciple, is a follower of Jesus, he's wanting to go meet those guys. He wanted to go hang out with them, which is, which is amazing. Well, again, we'll come back to this in just a moment. But as he's, as he's going in there, um, he's greeted all around with, with incredible suspicion. 
people are not buying his story, right? He's going around and being like, I'm converted, following Jesus. They're like, no, you're not. You are a you know, double agent. You're acting like you're a Christian because you want to arrest us. You are trying to figure out who's the leadership, right? You are part of this, you know, mafia that's this underground, this dark underworld that's trying to subvert what we have going on. And Paul's like, no, 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 I am. I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm one of you. But they're not buying it. This, this is where the story gets really good. Uh, Luke reintroduces us to another character that was, we, were, we were told about a few chapters earlier. He says, but Barnabas took Paul and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how that on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord, and he spoke and he disputed against the Hellenists. This is a a sect of Judaism, the Hellenists, that had a Greek leaning. And then he goes on to say, but they were seeking to kill him. And... They were seeking to kill him, and when the brothers learned of this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. So again, this is uh, just a brief introduction into Paul's kind of foray into the Jerusalem church. It, it didn't go well, in other words. It was really tough. It was really challenging. It was challenging because the, the, the followers of Jesus were very reluctant to embrace him, um, and the other sect of Judaism was out to kill him. So again, Saul's... Uh, entry point into the Christian faith is, is at best, all right, tumultuous, all right? It's not easy. All right, most of us, when we're like, pray the prayer or give our life to Jesus, it's like next day, I mean, the things we have to deal with are kind of like our inner demons, you know, our guilt or, you know, shame and whatnot, which is, which is big stuff, really big stuff. For, for Paul, he's dealing with literally people out to kill him. He's dealing with total, absolute rejection. Everybody is disbelieving his his story. This, I mean, this is fantastic stuff. But here's what's amazing about this story. As, like I said, we're reintroduced to this guy by the name of Barnabas. We're told about him earlier in the book of Acts. And Barnabas is a super generous guy. His name Barnabas is a great name. Not, not, I mean, like, if you're looking for a good name, the name your child, great name, Barnabas. It means son of encouragement, Barnabas. And the idea behind it is he comes alongside, and he, he's the type of guy that literally sees people that are in need, and comes alongside of them and says, I'm going I'm I'm to help you. So here's what happens. Is, is he notices Saul having a really hard time breaking into the community. All right? Some of you, you, you are that person. You felt that. I mean, how many of us have ever been in a situation, maybe a church function, a church gathering, a church event, church picnic, a Bible study, and you go in there and you, you kind of, you're like, I don't know anybody. They're all a different age than me. They're all younger or they're all older or they all have gray hair or they're really young and they're all really fit and good looking or they're all, they don't look like me. They have different color skin than me. And you feel like an outsider, all right? I think we all, at some point, can identify with that. We've all felt as if we are on the outskirts, on the outside of something that we really want to be part of. But we don't know how to break in. So what, what needed to happen for this guy Saul was Barnabas. Barnabas is this bridge. He's this incredible bridge that basically, again, notices. I mean, you can spend a whole time just looking at Barnabas alone um, and be really enriched by this. But Barnabas notices. He's got this ability to observe those that are on the outside, those that are on the outskirts, those that are marginalized, those that feel broken, those that feel lost, to go out of his way to reach them, to bring them in and say, you come with me. You're with me. And whatever shame that you might feel, I'll incur it with you. 
I'll wear whatever shame that you are feeling. I will put myself on the line in order to advance your credibility. We all need Barnabases. I mean, think about it this way. Let me, let me put it another way. What would it look like if we were a church, if we were a community of people that said, look, if, if there are those that we notice that feel on the outside, or people that maybe you see and you might be asking, well, how do we know that people might be feeling like they're on the outskirts or they might feel that they're marginalized? Well, just look around. I mean, sometimes body language is, is pretty, uh, it speaks loud. You can tell by the way sometimes people sit that they feel that they're not on the inside. They feel outside. Sometimes it just might be where they sit. They're, they're physically alienated. They're physically sitting by themselves, apart from other people. Sometimes some people want it, that space because of issues or things like that that they're dealing with, they're going through in their life. But sometimes it's because they don't feel welcomed. But what would it look like if we were a community of Barnabases that had this mentality, that had this ability to look at people, to look for people, to be aware of people that may be going through challenging circumstances or that may be alien or that may be feeling marginalized to say, I'm going to be the one to invite them in. So, what would it look like rather than being a, a community of people that were like, look, we, we want a community of like-minded individuals that we can then be a part of. So here's what we do oftentimes within our Americanized culture of consumerism. We say, I will devote myself, my energy, my time to a community of people as long as they fit this criteria. As long as they're my same age range, as long as they have kids, if I got kids, if there's too many young people, if the balance is there, if there's too many dark colored skin people, if there's too many light colored skin people, we're like, I'm not too sure, I've invested myself in that. I mean, the reality is, these are the ways in which we oftentimes stratify our decision making process to determine whether or not we should get in or get out. And it's all very American. And it looks nothing like the kingdom of God. Absolutely nothing like him. So what would it look like if we actually allow the Holy Spirit to do what the Holy Spirit is wanting to birth forth in our life, which is resurrection, right? What would it look like if we were a community of people that says, we're not going to let anybody slip through the cracks. If we see people sitting by themselves, if we're aware of those that might be feeling marginalized for whatever the circumstances are, skin color, age difference, you know, maybe they're, they're not as good looking, maybe whatever. Whatever the reasons are, if we were the type of people to say, it's not okay with us that others feel alienated while we feel in. We're going to reach out to them. We're going to love them. We're going to welcome them. I, I think, honestly, I, I think what would happen is it would look like this loving community. That doesn't mean that, you know, we all kind of got stuff figured out. It just means that, that people of all ages... All stages, all skin colors, all social economic levels have a place. That sounds a lot like God's kingdom. That sounds a lot like what Jesus says. The kingdom of heaven is like this. And he describes his images and that's what it looks like. That's what it would look like. We want to be that type of people. And that's, I just, I love this because this is what Barnabas was doing. He was embodying the, 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 the resurrection life of God by reaching out to this guy Saul, who otherwise would have just been omitted. Who, I mean, the irony is this, is that because he's welcomed, he's invited in, he actually ends up being the greatest contributor to what we call the New Testament. Like without Saul, we wouldn't have Ephesians, Philippians, 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. We wouldn't have much, most of the New Testament. But, I mean, just think about the significant role that this guy Barnabas played. We can all be that. Like, and, and the beauty of this is, is, is this not exactly what God does for us? <laughs> like, God was under no obligation 
to reach out to us. Like, were we not alienated from God, the Bible says? Like, not just alienated because we're like, I don't want God, but alienated because of our, our, our sin, our rebellion, our will for autonomy. But God says, no, it's not okay. I, I, will, I will bear their reproach in order to go out of my way to reach and bring them in. That, this, that's the God that we have. That's what God did for us. So Barnabas is, is sort of a living embodiment of this. It's, it's wonderful. So as we move on, I'm going to wrap this up here. Uh, we see that Barnabas is, is living this out. He brings Paul in. The last few verses uh, we read in verse 31, I'll just pick it up right there. He says, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And it multiplied. So he's not describing a formula. He's not saying, hey, here's the way to multiply a church. And he's just simply describing. Here's the facts. Here's the facts on the ground. Facts on the ground are uh, the church, as it's been undergoing its different forms of mutation and growth, um, these are the things that it's been experiencing. These are, every once in a while, Luke, the author, will give us sort of these summary verses, like summary statements. You know, here's what's been going on up to this point. Here's what's happening here. This is sort of a summary statement. So let's get back into try to answering and understanding a little bit about that question about spiritual progress. Because again, we see kind of everything to some degree, I think, kind of pivots on verse 22. Um, as it gives us this information about this guy, Saul of Tarsus. So I'll, I'll read it again. It says this, Saul increased all the more in strength. So I think of it this way. Spiritual uh, growth or spiritual progress is equivalent to growth in strength. The word that, that uh, Luke uses here is Kind of an interesting word. I'm not, I'm not a Greek scholar. I have good Bible software and whatnot. But one of the words that he uses here is the word endunamu, I think is the actual Greek word that he uses here. And it's the idea of with strength. And it's in a passive form, meaning that here he is. He's simply describing, here's this guy Paul, um, receiving strength from God. God is actively giving and doing strength upon this guy Saul. So in other words, again, like with every gift, we'll come back to this, there, there's uh, or interaction, there's always someone who's giving a gift, but then there's always someone receiving that gift. And, and here we see Saul receiving this gift of strength from God. And then we begin to see kind of what happens in Saul's life. And there's at least three things we can look at, at least in the passage. There's a lot of other things we can talk about, spiritual progress, but I'll just kind of focus on three that we see here in the passage. I'll just wrap this up. So the first thing that we see with regard to Saul in terms of spiritual progress, is one, uh, we see this radical transformation where he's completely centered in Jesus. His life is radically centered on Christ. Verse 20, verse 22, just tells us that he immediately proclaims Jesus. This is, again, this is shocking if you are familiar with the story of Saul. Because he was anti-Jesus, has this encounter with God, and becomes pro-Jesus. Right? Everything about his life, his message, his, his actions is all focused, saturated in the storyline, the narrative of, of Jesus. Everything. His life literally becomes about Jesus. Here's, here's the point I would make. Saul's life uh, was taken up in a brand new orbit. There's no such thing as, as comets that are, that are just the loose and have no form of interaction in, in our universe. In other words, even they're discovering, like, even comets that, that seem to be just going nowhere, they're, they're, there's always this interplay between various forces of gravity all around our universe. There's these paths that they take. So the point that I would make is that all of us as human beings, our lives gravitate around something. Our lives gravitate around something. We're not just free-floating 
free individual, free people the way we oftentimes think we are. We are all influenced by something. The Bible's word for this is, is idolatry. We all have something that we, we elevate and lift up in our lives in this maximum form of saying, this is what I give my heart, my energy, my mind, my money, my time to. And for Paul, it, it, was, it was from this temple philosophy that he had inherited from Gamaliel and the Sadducean uh, community to now it was all focused on Jesus. His whole center of gravity shifted to being influenced, radically impacted by Jesus. So what about you? So if, if you're going to make any advancement in your spiritual progress, in your growth, there needs to undergo this realm, the sense whereby your life becomes about Jesus. So in other words, this is not ambiguous. It's not just some vague spirituality. Right? In today's world, it's, it's very common, popular to talk about spirituality. You know, be like, oh, I'm a spiritual person. Um, have you guys, there's a guy named J.P. Sears. Have you guys seen that? Okay. Uh, YouTube him. He's absolutely hilarious. I don't, I don't know anything if he's a Christian or not. I probably shouldn't be doing his analogy, but this guy's so funny. Have you guys, has anybody seen him? Okay, both of you guys, come on. Seriously? The rest of you guys are not admitting to it, and I know this, but he's hilarious. Anyways, he talks a little bit about spirituality, but that's all I'm going to say. But the point is, is that this is not talking about some sort of vague spirituality. It's not just some sort of vague notion like, you know, I follow this abstract idea in the universe. This is Paul saying, my life, my center of gravity, my all in all has shifted over to be about Jesus. So, so one of the ways in which you can authenticate and ask, have you had a true encounter with God, is where is your center of gravity shifted to? If it's just shifted to some sort of ambiguous spirituality, it, it, may, have, it may have been a false encounter. It may not have been an actual, real, genuine encounter with God. A real, genuine encounter with God is always going to lead you back to Christ at the center of it. Christ is the center of it. Christ is the center of Paul's life. So the second thing that we see is not only Christ is the center of everything, we also see, secondly, that Saul receives this incredible grace in the middle of of resistance. Um, Immediately when he begins to follow God, he immediately encounters insane resistance. Um, again, we will all encounter various forms of resistance, pushback, hardships, trials, tribulations. Jesus says we're not immune to it. And look, the fact of the matter is, you can be someone here this morning and it's like, you know, I'm not even a really follower of Jesus. I'm not really interested in being a follower of Jesus. But the fact is, is that we will all encounter various forms of resistance. The difference, I would say, with a follower of Jesus, the one who's receiving strength like the way Paul receives strength, when he's making spiritual progress, is that in the midst of that resistance, they're receiving God's grace to continue to keep going forth. That's what I would say the difference is. Um, in, in Saul's case, on the one hand, he is in the midst of this plot, right? Murder plot. Like he is on the menu as number one. Like let's kill Saul. But he finds out about it. There's grace whereby he's got people around him that are letting him down in a basket by the middle of the night. I mean, like talk about grace, like God taking care of him. The second of which is when he comes to Jerusalem. And he wants to enter in, and yet he's being pushed out. And yet grace comes in the form of, of Barnabas. Think about that. God's grace comes in this very tangible uh, format of Barnabas. What I love about this is, is when we pray for people, think about it this way. How many people do you know right now that you're praying like, God, you know, help them pay their bills. Or God, help them have a nice meal. Do you know that you can actually be the answer to that prayer? 
Like rather than praying, God, help them raise their money so they can pay their bill. Maybe God's saying to you, um, take a hundred bucks out of your bank account and give it to them or figure out a way something that you can sell. Have a garage so that you can maybe give some money away to that person that's in need or someone needs groceries. You go be the one to buy them groceries. You actually have the ability to be the embodiment of God's grace in, in someone else's life. In the same way that Barnabas was the embodiment of God's grace in the middle of his uh, resistance with trying to enter into this community of Jesus people in which there was this element of pushback. Final thing is we see that you have this sense of courage for God. And we see this really clearly with Paul. Verse 27, it says, Paul preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Verse 28, it says, he uh, went in and among them at Jerusalem, he was preaching boldly in the name of Jesus. So it's not just preaching, but there's this element of boldness. Um, Paul had this ability to be able to just boldly stand for it and communicate. There was not a sense of shame. There's not a sense of doubt. I mean, there may have been moments where Paul felt ashamed over his past. There's, this seems to be something that Paul dealt with periodically throughout his life, of thinking, I was there when Stephen died. I was part of that whole revolt, that death, that murder. I was part of that. There's no doubt that Paul probably dealt with some of that. And this is not boldness accompanied by arrogance. Have you ever, have you ever met those people that are extremely bold for God, but super, super arrogant, condescending, putting people down? We're not talking about that. So it's possible to actually have boldness minus the arrogance, all right? And what we see with Paul is that God gives him this boldness. He's able to go in with great boldness and communicate, speak confidently in the name of Jesus, for Jesus. And this is progress. I think these are all ways in which we can look at Paul was strengthened. Spiritual strength equals spiritual progress. So again, going back to the original question, what does spiritual progress look like? In a way, what does being strengthened by God actually look like? Well, I think it looks like being centered in Jesus, where Jesus is the focal point of your life, or at least you want him to be, so you focus on that, you uh, use your energy towards that. For some of you, you're a little bit more advanced than that. You've, you've, you've been a Christian for a longer time. For others of you, you're still just kind of playing around and thinking about this. And, but my encouragement to you is that there is a very clear bentedness. Maybe that's not the best way, but there's a, there's a desire to long for, learn about Jesus. Second thing is you receive this grace so that in the midst of resistance and hardship, you can even say, look, I feel like I'm in the midst of insanity, but somehow I feel like God keeps showing grace and kindness and others are coming to our aid and helping us. Somehow God is, is with us. He's in tangible ways in the midst of insanity. And then finally, uh, there's this element of just being able to have courage. So, so the, I think these are measurements. These are ways in which we can look at and ask, are we growing in grace? Are we, is there advancement in our spiritual progress? If, if so, that's, that's awesome. If not, then these are things that we just got to look at and just say, how can God reorient my heart towards this end? Um, because what none of us ever want, none of us want some sort of fake plastic Christianity. All right? Uh, plastic ficus trees may have some element of purpose in this world. I haven't figured out what yet. But they're certainly not good for food. They don't provide any form of sustenance. They don't really help anybody. They don't even really look that cool. No offense. But the fact of the matter is, what we really want to be are like gardens. That as we grow, as our lives begin to bear forth fruit, that there's benefit that we offer to other people. That people can feed upon, feast upon 
the circumstances, the hardships that we're going through because they're getting Jesus from our lives. They're watching us. When we bleed, we bleed Jesus. That's, that's exactly what happened in the early church. When people saw literal blood being shed, they were like, oh my gosh, this, this is a constant reminder of the blood that was shed through Jesus. He bled for us and we are saved. This person is giving their life because they're devoted fully to the purposes of this mission we call the church. So this is an invitation. That's what Christianity is. It's always, 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 not only a declaration, but always an invitation to, to pause, to reflect, to ask what direction, what path, what type of weightiness does my life have? What orbit am I in? Where, where am I following? What type of gravitational heaviness or weightiness is in my life right now? What is it being sustained by? To, to come to the table to say, I want my life to be oriented around Jesus. He gives life. He sustains. He gives hope. And that's how we want to finish. It's because at the end of the day, we respond. We respond by singing. We respond by lifting up our voices to God. We respond by partaking of the supper, the Lord's Supper. We eat the bread. We drink the cup. Because, again, we always go back to the fact that we are reminded that Christianity is not primarily a lecture table where we go and hear a message. It is a table where we have a feast. We're invited, no matter how dirty or broken or wounded or messed up or scorned or mocked or abused or fragile our hearts are, and we come to this table knowing that we are welcome. No matter what type of level or where we're at, we're on this journey, we're welcomed there because we have Jesus who's radically reflected in the life of Barnabas who comes to us and says, come, come to me. I'll carry your shame. I'll take whatever guilt upon myself that you normally would have borne. And you come with me. You are my guest at my table with me. And this is what we have. This is what we come to celebrate. This is why we gather, is to be reminded of the fact that we are the community of God's people. We practice, to use the analogy of Eugene Peterson, which is the fantastic name of a book, The Practice of Resurrection. That's what we're called to, is to practice resurrection. That's what Jesus' people are all about. Our lives have been hijacked by an alternative narrative that doesn't end in death, but is followed by resurrection. This is what Jesus invites us to, to enter into this resurrected life, realizing that death is not the end, realizing that fear, shame, guilt is not the end, but that in Christ we have everything. Paul underwent this radical overturning of his life where he realized that all that he had given himself to before was not the end of life. It was leading to further death. Paul was an ambassador of death before he came face to face with the dead and resurrected Savior. And then Paul became this ambassador of life. That's the invitation for all of us to assess, to analyze, to think about, to consider our lives and ask what trajectory, what path are we on and to accept, to receive. The way that we accept and receive it is by faith. We trust And one of the most tangible ways we do it is by taking the bread and drinking the cup. And we remember that this is how we have been shown God's grace. And in closing, like I said, this transaction of giver and receiver always happens. There's two things that happen. One, there needs to be one that gives this gift. And then there's a receiver. So you might ask, well, what do I do? The answer is you, you you receive. It's a free gift that God gives you. God gives you his life. He gives you his strength. He gives you resurrection. And it's, it's, it's our responsibility just to, to believe it, to receive it. How do we do that, you might say? The answer is by faith. We just trust it. God, I, I trust it. I give my life. I shift 
my loyalties from all of these other things in life that I've hoped in to you. My loyalty now belongs to you. That is a follower of Jesus. You're invited to partake. So why don't we all stand? Let's sing. I'll pray. If you're here this morning or things are going on in your life you need prayer for, we'd love to pray with you. We have some people that will be over off by the cross that would love to pray with you. I'll be at the front. If you want to come to the front and sit down on the rugs or wherever you want to be prayed for, I'd be happy to pray for you. I'll be up here. And then let me pray. We'll sing a few songs and we'll wrap it up. Sound good? God, right now we come to you. God, we come realizing that we are broken people. We come and many of our lives and our loyalties have been devoted to things. Our energy, our power, our strength, our might, even our money has been uh, in so many ways enthusiastically devoted to things that are actually promoting death. Maybe not only death to ourselves, but death to other people in our lives, people that we love, relationships that are dying because of our devotions and loyalties to things of death. And yet, God, we, we come to the table and we're reminded of the fact that your body was broken, your blood was shed, and we're invited to partake of that. And in partaking of that, God, you give us life. You take upon our, yourself our shame, our guilt, our loneliness, our fears, our brokenness, and in its place, God, you make us whole. So we respond in worship. We respond in uh, acceptance, partaking, saying yes, Lord, to you.